The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter 11, Falling Down, Getting Up. Martin knew he shouldn't have gone down to help Carlos finish the buckboard. Woodworking always absorbed him. Now he was late for the meeting. Yesterday's town meeting was interrupted by the news about Clyde's corn being stolen. There was still unfinished business, but more importantly, discussions of what to do next. Following the trudge paths that others had created through the snow made for faster going, but the paths were a little too uneven and slick for anything beyond a fast walk. His mind swirled with issues to be resolved. Margaret's quick recalculations showed that all the fish he brought back had succeeded in evening up their proteins and carbs. Now both would run out in late January, especially with another mouth to feed. The fish Charles had to sell would do the same for others. What would they do with Andy? Would he lose toes or fingers to frostbite? An invalid mouth to feed would be an even bigger problem. Charles's trucking venture couldn't supply the dietary needs of the whole town. Joni's infatuation seemed like a trivial problem compared to running low on food. Would the whole Bain family become another drain on what little the Simmonses had? The path led past the general store, across the road to town hall. To his right, the crude wooden obelisk stood incomplete, capped by snow. Now that Clyde lacked the blackmail power of his corn, would it ever be finished? Martin heard a noise to his left. He turned to see, but was suddenly struck in the eye. The force of the blow sent him spinning into the snowy ground. He thought he must have walked into a board or something. Before he could finish turning onto his side to stand up, he caught a glimpse of a shadow moving quickly toward him. Someone jumped on his back and began punching his head. Martin got one knee under himself so he was able to buck off the attacker to one side. To keep the attacker off balance, Martin quickly threw himself at the center of the blurry mass. His eye was starting to swell shut. He hit the attacker with his shoulder. The two tumbled in the snow. The man flailed and kicked but never landed more than glancing blows. In one of their tumbles, Martin got a glimpse of the side of the man's face. He swung a hard left, aiming for where the man's nose ought to be. The man grunted at the blow and fell beside Martin. Martin got behind the man, an arm around his neck. He pulled back and up as hard as he could. The man's arms flailed backward, trying to gain some purchase, but Martin pulled harder. "'Give it up, or I'll choke you unconscious,' Martin growled, out of breath. "'Never!' squeaked the man. "'You're not getting my wife!' "'What?' Martin thrust the man away from himself and braced to face him. Steve got up slowly from the pile of snow, blood streaming down over his mouth. He lunged at Martin as if to haul him to the ground with a body check. Martin stopped the lunge with a locked fist's downward blow on the top of Steve's head. He fell, face-first, into the churned-up snow at Martin's feet. Martin stood back a few paces, braced for another attack. He felt for his high point in his coat pocket, while his mind tried to sort out whether he could shoot Steve or not. What a mess that would create! Pistol-whipping would be trouble enough. He slid the safety back on and grabbed the barrel. Steve pulled himself up on his hands and knees. 
He looked around to locate Martin. I'm not giving up. My family, without a fight. He staggered to his feet. Well, I can see that, said Martin, still braced. But honestly, I don't want your wife or your family. All she can do is go on and on about how wonderful you are, Steve ranted his accusations. Even my kids talk about you and want to know when you're coming back. You guys were in rough shape. You needed help. I know that, darn it all, Steve barked. He spat blood out of his mouth. I'd been totally worthless to them since this whole thing began. He squared up his footing as if preparing for another lunge. Steve, you just stay there. I'll drop you to the ground again, so help me. But I don't want to. I didn't used to be worthless. He poked at his chest. I was good at my job. Made good money. We had nice things. Joni loved me then. Now all she talks about is all the things that you do and all the things that I can't do right. I broke her saw. I broke the water bucket. All I can do is break things. That last statement struck a chord in Martin's mind. What did you say? All I can do is break things. I shouldn't be surprised. That's what I did for a living, more or less. But what good is that now? How can breaking things provide for my family? Well, now hold on. Martin adopted a less defensive pose and let go with a high point in his pocket. I think you might be on to something. Steve abandoned his linebacker stance. What are you talking about? Onto what? Breaking things. When we were in Hampton, I saw people taking apart abandoned houses. They used some of the wood for fuel, since they have few trees, but they were using whatever else they could salvage. Butch was going to use some copper pipes to make a salt still. What if you did that here? We've heard about several houses damaged by fires, right? You've even got one on your street. Those shells are useless to anyone else. What if we talk to lenders about setting up some sort of salvage rights thing? But there's still someone else's property, countered Steve. Well, true, but they're most likely an insurance write-off, if that ever comes back. They'll only get bulldozed anyhow. So I got to thinking, what if you and other people went in to salvage what you could find before the bulldozers? You could bring home firewood for your family, if nothing else. You might find other things your family could use. New buckets, medical supplies, soap, some tools. Lots of stuff that people leave behind. Steve's wheels were obviously turning. I always thought my job breaking down software was kind of esoteric. You know, not a skill with much other use. But heck, I bet I could break walls and stuff. Well, now you're talking. I'm going to need some more sheet metal for another gasifier I've been asked to make. Arthur, up on Bell Hill, wants one for his tractor. Houses with forced air heat could have lots of sheet metal in them. You could harvest it, and your wife could make it into things. Martin was careful to refer to Joni as his wife, and not by name. Oh, heck yeah, I like that. His smile caused the blood crust on his lips to crack. But to keep things civilized, the town's got to sanction it. Paper trail and all that. Let's go float the idea past Landers and the selectmen. When Martin entered the auditorium, the audience was smaller and already abuzz with animated conversations. Candace was working the crowd with her smile in full compassion mode. She was trying to nurture fear and allay it at the same time. 
A couple people turned to see who entered. One of the women gasped. That prompted everyone to turn and see. More gasps. "'Good Lord, Simmons,' said Landers. "'Your eye! What happened to you?' "'Huh? Oh, I, uh, fell down.' Martin tried to open his swollen eye wider so it wouldn't look as obvious, but it didn't work. He was stuck looking out of a slit. Steve stepped out from behind Martin, wiping the blood crust off his face. "'And him?' "'Uh, Steve fell down, too.' Landers raised one skeptical eyebrow. "'Uh-huh. Well, you two accident-prone gentlemen were just in time to resume yesterday's interrupted meeting. I'll wait until you've both gotten well seated.' "'Yeah,' quipped Hooper. "'We don't want any of that falling in here.' A few hushed snickers drifted through the crowd. Our first order of business is to take a vote on the dissolution of the recently enacted fourth selectman seat. So moved. Seconded. Is there any discussion? Everyone looked at Candace. She was the one who usually took the discussion phase of any motion to pontificate about some social injustice issue or another, whether related to the motion or not. Candace sat quietly. Well, seeing as there's no discussion, all in favor say aye. Most people said aye. All opposed? There was some murmuring and throat-clearing, but nothing approaching a nay. The gavel fell. The ayes have it. The fourth selectman seat is hereby dissolved. Mike Wilder was quick to pick up the empty chair and lay it on the floor. I don't think we'll be hearing from Mr. Grading for a while, anyhow. I still say he stole his own corn, said an old man in front. He looked seventy. But with the lean diets, everyone looked ten years older. Just a ruse to drum up sympathy, and then, you just you watch, he'll suddenly discover where the thieves hid it, or some such malarkey. I don't think they did it to themselves, said Tyler. They were laying there, tied up, for almost two days. Yeah, they could have died of exposure. It's all an act, said the old man. No one seriously hurt, right? Why'd the thieves leave everyone alive, huh? Struck me as fishy right off the bat. Yeah, because it would leave Cheshire with just that many more mouths to feed, Martin said to himself. Why don't we just track those trucks to where they went? Big rubber like that's got to leave marks, even on blacktop. Where'd they go? We should track em. Ah, Four inches of snow kind of messes that up, said Landers. "'Think it was them danged lake people?' asked an older woman. Yeah, "'Where would they get two five-ton trucks?' Martin noticed Candace slide down in her seat slightly. Yeah, "'We can spin theories until springtime,' said Landers. "'But it's not addressing our problem. "'We were all counting on Clyde's con to see us through the winter. "'Now none of us have any.' "'And now you don't have any seed for spring planting, either.' added Pete. This caused some more murmurs. Maybe you should take an inventory of what people still have of Clyde's corn and set it aside for seed. But we need to eat now, protested one woman. What good is having seed for spring if we all starve this winter? We're already scrimping, many in the crowd protested loudly at the prospect of not being able to eat what corn they had. Tales of half-rationed meals, skipping meals, and new mouths to feed all swirled in a tall wave poised to break. Now hold on, hold on, 
Lander stood up with Christ-like arms outstretched to calm the stormy waters. No one is going to starve this winter. We'll just have to work together, is all. We can make it. His tone sounded as if he was trying to convince himself. But Pete's got a good point. If this outage goes on for a year, we'll need something for planting next year so we're not back in the same mess a year from now. I bought a hundred bucks worth, Charles said sheepishly, as soon as we got back. Maybe the afternoon before the thieves struck. But Tyler was with me, and we were both home with our family, he quickly added. You can ask them. Ah, no one is accusing you, uh, anyone, of having stolen the con, said Landers. Obviously somebody did, said a voice in the back. Right, and we can't change that. Anybody else know a bigger batches of Clyde's con that we might save for seed? Landers was trying to get people's minds focused on the future rather than suspicions. A few hands went up, but only offering five or six years. Um, maybe we should be casting a wider net, said Martin. I'll bet lots of people have seed packets that they were planning to garden with. Beans, squash, tomatoes, stuff like that. I know my wife has a whole box full of them. Maybe if people pool their seeds, we can get some numbers, some economy of scale. Now you're talking, said Landers. Drew, you're the avid gardener among us. Why don't you head that up? Take a survey. See what the people have. We might save some of Clyde's corn for planting, but we might have plenty else to plant, too. We need to look forward to planting this uh, agricultural stuff. I also had another idea, Martin raised his hand. Steve and I were talking. Before you fell down or after? quipped Hooper. Uh, after, I guess. Anyhow, we'd like to propose that the town authorize people to salvage things from the damaged homes, kind of like a reverse building permit. That way they could get firewood, maybe tools, charcoal for filters, could be some hidden food, you know, whatever. The town oversees it so it's not a free-for-all, documented for the insurance companies, if that ever comes back online. But it could give a lot of families with nothing a little something. Uh, What do you think? Landers looked at Fire Chief Anton. Yeah, most of them are total write-offs, if you ask me, said Anton. The insurance companies would just knock them down and start over. Yeah, it's a policy thing, Landers stroked his beard. So we don't really need a town vote on that, just the board. What do you say, gentlemen? Moved. Seconded. Aye. Aye. Well, that was fast. Okay, we're open for salvage permits. I'd like to be the first, said Steve. A house at the end of my cul-de-sac, Walden? Sounds good. We'll drop some sort of paper for you to sign. See me after the trading session. I've got a four-foot wrecking bar at my house, Martin said quietly to Steve. You can borrow that until you find something of your own. Oh, thanks, man. And, uh, sorry about the eye. But I I really thought that you... uh, That's okay, that's okay. And sorry about the nose. Those paths can be dangerously slippery, can't they? Steve smiled sheepishly. There was little further business to tend to at the deliberative session. What most people were waiting for was the trading session. The past few trading sessions had been dominated by Clyde and his corn. Everyone wanted his corn. Some seemed to bestow the corn with magical panacea qualities, much like oat bran, omega-3, or gluten-free had promised dietary peace and prosperity. 
Even those less inclined to panaceas had clearly hitched their hopes to the corn. The newly cornless were looking abandoned and lost. Candace flitted among them, a dark butterfly, spreading the pollen of doom, and a siren calling sailors to the federal rocks. Martin had not brought much with him for trading. He had some dollars remaining, though not many. He had a box of nine-millimeter rounds, on the prospect of that becoming a de facto currency. Hooper teased him about trying to keep three women with a heavy I-told-you-so overtone. Martin didn't feel like trying to explain, so just laughed it off. Instead of one table dominating, there were three that garnered the most interest. A line was forming in front of the Hendricks brothers' table. The smell of smoked fish was unmistakable. Martin hoped that he hadn't ruined a sizable batch of his own fish with his hacked-together smoker. He should have experimented with smoking fish before it was critical. Tomorrow would tell. Another line developed near another table. Martin drifted over to see why. Pete had set out a variety of freeze-dried foods. There were many eager lookers, but not much business being transacted. "'Ah, what's the deal, Pete?' Landers asked him. "'Thought you'd swore never to have to take part in our trading sessions.' "'I don't have to,' Pete corrected him. "'I'm choosing to. Big difference.' Uh, "'What do these tags mean?' asked the young man at the head of the line. Uh, "'10-9? Uh, 4-45?' Ten rounds of nine millimeter, or four rounds of forty-five,' said Pete. "'Oh,' the young man melted off to one side, but still eyed the table's contents. The woman behind him picked up two packs of freeze-dried chili mac. She counted out eight rounds of forty-five as she dropped them into Pete's open palm. Taking ammo or silver has kind of narrowed my market, said Pete, but I'm doing this more as a public service. I really don't need the ammo or the silver. Figure I ought to get something while I'm helping out. Martin thought he might as well bring home something for the pantry. He moved to join the back of the line. From there, he could see a third line. Walter and Sally stood at their table. Confident that Pete wouldn't sell out, given his choice in currency, Martin drifted over to see what Walter had that drew a crowd. Oh, hi, Martin. Sally waved and beckoned him over. I haven't seen you in weeks. I'm going to have to come to these silly meetings more often, if only for the social side. She gave him a grandmotherly bear hug. How's that curious daughter-in-law of yours? And that lovely Susan? And how's Margaret? Uh, they're all fine. Margaret's a little tired from helping lots of people, and a little worried about our food supplies now that the big stash of corn has disappeared. Sally gave a theatrical gasp as a conversational tool. Ah, <gasps> oh, I heard about that. That's why we brought some of our supplies. Walter didn't want to bring any yesterday for the trading session, since he figured everyone was okay with that man's corn. I'm glad I never met that man, she said as an aside. But Sally, where did you guys get all this stuff? Martin pointed at their table. Bags of rice, cans of Dinty Moore stew, obscure store-brand cans of vegetables. They all looked fresh from a grocery store. Oh, that was Malcolm, Sally said. Hush now, woman, Walter muttered under his breath. I told you that we need to be careful. I know, I know. She dismissed his concern. Well, fine, then. 
Here, Martin, you should take this can of stew for Margaret. Woman, we can't just go giving this stuff away. I told you, protested Walter. That's okay, Walter. I'll buy it. Uh, how much are you asking? Oh, that's just it, interrupted Sally. He doesn't know what he wants. He just traded a big box of pasta for an alarm clock. It's a perfectly good clock, Walter said defensively. Good for what, Walter? You've got three wind-ups already. Why on earth? Oh, never mind. That was what they had, so I said yes. Well, Pete over there, Martin pointed, is taking ammo or silver. Are you doing that too? Uh, I suppose I could. Walter rubbed his chin. I don't have any money, said a thin-faced man, but I'll haul in firewood for you, or, or shovel snow, or carry water, anything. Could I please have some food? Walter adopted a stern frown as he studied the man. From the clothes and remnants of a stylish haircut, the man could have been in his late twenties, but the sunken facial features aged him to look more like fifty. People in line behind him looked equally gaunt. "'Well, I don't need firewood hauled or any of that stuff.' The man clasped his hands, about to plead with Walter, but he cut him off with a raised finger. "'I do, however. Fancy that belt of yours. Oh, that's a fine belt.' Uh, "'My belt?' "'Yep. I'll trade you two cans of stew for that belt.' The man had the belt off before Walter had finished speaking. He offered it to Walter with one trembling hand, the other hand he used to hold up his two large pants. "'What are you doing?' Sally hissed out of the side of her mouth. "'I'm trading,' said Walter. The thin man shuffled off with tears in his eyes and a can of stew in each hand. Thumbs hooked through belt loops kept his baggy pants up. Yeah, "'We can't just be giving the stuff away,' Walter told Martin softly. "'People don't value anything if it's free.' Besides that, if they trade for something, then they can keep their dignity, too. Martin was extremely curious about the source of Walter and Sally's abundance, yet he could tell that Walter wasn't inclined to discuss such things in public. He would play the trading game. Well, uh, how much would you trade for an hour of generator time? Martin asked. An hour? Walter's eyes were like a child's at Christmas. Well, sure, I can bring over Tin Man and our generator, hook it up to your battery bank, and you can surf the skips or whatever you want. What do you say? How much would that buy me? Walter was still stuck in Christmas mode. His mouth hung open somewhat. He thinks you can have this big bag of rice and three cans of beef stew uh, and this bag of flour, said Sally. While Martin gathered up the bounty, Sally whispered in his ear, I was just going to give you the stuff. But he's pretty dead set that people have to trade something. Generator time was the perfect bait to catch a ham fish. She chuckled at her own joke. Well, you just let me know when you want me to bring the generator over, said Martin. He was more than pleased with his success in the trading session. He had added some food. It would go to pay Joni and Steve for their metal work, or it would cover the addition of Andy for a while. It wasn't a long-term solution but it helped. He also wanted to learn more about this Malcolm. Some private time at Walter's house would be a better venue. Margaret gasped. What did you do to your eye? Uh, it's uh, slippery out there, and uh, it's not as bad as it looks, uh, but never mind. Look what I got. Martin held out a sack of groceries. 
Where on earth did you find that stuff? Margaret peered in the bag. Oh, trading session, Martin said. People were kind of gloomy at first about the loss of the corn, but that Pete guy was selling some of his five-year supply of freeze-dried stuff. Charles and Tyler were selling smoked fish. Walter and Sally were, well, trading for these. Margaret hurried into the kitchen with her new groceries. Where did they get these things? I mean, that Pete guy, I can understand. He has, apparently, had his bunker stocked with years worth for a long time. Charles, I can understand, too. He just came back with a load of fish. But where did Sally find new factory food? Yeah, I don't know, but I traded this stuff for an hour of generator time. So that'll be a good time to find out. In the meantime, these should help ease the strain on the pantry for having Andy here. Uh, where is he, by the way? He's not lying on the living room floor anymore? He said he was feeling better. Yeah, look out front, Margaret said with a nod toward the bay window. Out in the snow, along the tree line at the edge of the yard, Andy and Lucas were on their knees, feeling under the snow with both hands, as if it were a huge white rug. I guess he's feeling better, but what are they doing? They'll go ask him. That Andy is a chatty little guy. Margaret smiled. Martin liked to see her smile. It took ten years off her. Martin pulled his cap and gloves back on before going out. He added a pair of sunglasses to forestall more questions about his eye. Uh, what are you two doing? He called out from the front porch. Oh, hey, Mr. No, sir. You're back from town. Yeah, excellent. Us? Oh, we're feeling for acorns. It's kind of like bobbin for apples, except there aren't really apples and it's not really bobbin, so I guess it's not really like that so much, but still, we've been finding acorns. Show them, little amigo. Lucas proudly held up an old pillowcase with a lump at the bottom about the size of a shoe. Andy struggled to his feet, leaning against a crutch made out of a sapling and some small boards. Oh, hey, and check out my new mobility tool here, too, eh? Big amigo made this for me. Pretty cool, huh? Mrs. Noser said I should stay off my foot on account of it being really swollen and red and totally not a chick magnet feature. She thinks there might still be some freezer burn or something. I'm supposed to not walk on it, but that's where Big Amigo came in. Andy hobbled toward Martin with his rustic crutch, but slipped in the snow. He landed, face first, in the fresh fluff. Lucas ran up to help him, but stood back and laughed and pointed. Martin was about to rebuke Lucas for laughing at Andy's misfortune, but then he saw why. Snow stuck to Andy's hair, eyebrows, and scraggly beard. Huh, you look like a skinny Santa, Lucas laughed. Huh, you're a little early Santa. Andy looked down at his snowy beard and chuckled. Oh, wow, hey, check out my festive metamorphosis, eh? I ho, 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 and stuff. And hey, look, I even got a bag of gifts. He held up the pillowcase of acorns. Lucas resumed helping Andy get onto his feet and retrieving his crutch. I heard you and the missus uh, talking about not having much food and I was feeling like really bad showing up like some peripheral acquaintance looking to couch surf and I figured I needed to bring something for the table, uh, literally. Then I spotted your oak tree over there. Little Amigo was telling me about your fondness for squirrel soup so I figured the herd might be thin and there'd be some mast left for the rest of us. Uh, I've read about eating acorns said Martin. He hefted the pillowcase. It felt like a couple of pounds of acorns. Oh, hey, sure you can. We had a couple of red oaks near, uh, our camp. Andy's eyes stared into the distance. 
Well, how did you prepare them? Martin sought to derail the bad memories Andy had dredged up. I heard it was a lot of work, which is why most people don't bother. Oh, work? Oh, yeah, I guess so. But I gotta put in my share, too, right? First thing is to crack open these little shells. Oh, now if only I knew someone who liked to hammer on things. Andy looked anywhere but at Lucas. Oh, I do, I do. Lucas's face seemed to double in size with a wide smile. No way, teased Andy. You like to hammer on stuff? Well, then we better get these little beauties in the house and check out your hammering skills. I mean, I can't hammer with my foot being all swollen. You don't hammer with your feet, scoffed Lucas. Have I been doing it wrong all these years, teased Andy. The two of them headed for the front door, chuckling and chatting. Before Martin could reach the front door, he saw Joni walking around the corner of the driveway. She waved enthusiastically. Martin sank a little in his coat, but waved back. They walked into the open garage. "'I have those cable fittings you asked for,' she sang. "'A good deal,' Martin looked intently at the fittings she handed him. Joni was standing squarely in front of him, trying to be seen." Uh, hey, Carlos, let's pull the buckboard out and get these fitted outside. In the snow? Carlos sounded protective of his handiwork. It's only a couple of inches of snow. It's been melting back already. The first snow doesn't usually last. Besides, Jen is coming pretty soon to test fit her tack. It was a mild day, not quite warm enough to work without gloves. The fine work of threading the brake cables and twisting on the little nuts, however, required bare fingers. Carlos sat in the driver's seat, test-pulling the brake lever over and over while Martin made adjustments. The right caliper was easier to adjust, for some reason. I think it's just brilliant how you managed to rig up the dirt bike's brakes to still work on this thing, bubbled Joni. Those grabber bracket things were kind of hard to bend up, but they seemed to work just fine. So far, Martin put his gloves back on. The big test is coming now. Martin heard two horses blowing and snorting, unseen up the road. Jen was bringing Peaches and Constance, her two-horse team. She was early. Jen and her husband Robert each led a horse around the driveway fences. Over the back of each horse hung a jumble of straps and harness gear. "'Oh, you have it out already,' Jen said with a little squeal of excitement. "'It's beautiful!' The horse that Jen led snorted and nodded. Peaches thinks it looks great, too. Such a slight-looking buggy, Robert said. These two have been trading on my cargo wagon thus far, which looks like a garbage truck in comparison. They ought to do fine with a rig like this. Jen and Robert backed up the horses into their places on either side of the buckboard's tongue. It took them a while to hook up all the straps and rings, traces and reins. Peaches stomped in place, tugging at each new strap to see if they were done. Constance was more calm, but looked around eagerly, like a dog who had been promised a romp in the park. "'Okay, I think we're all hooked up,' said Robert. "'Time to take her for a spin.' He hefted himself up on the driver's bench. Jen climbed up beside him. She bounced on the seat to feel the springs and smiled. "'Do you think I could go for a ride?' Carlos asked. "'Well, sure, come on up,' said Robert. "'You deserve a seat on the maiden voyage.' Carlos climbed up into the cargo bed and braced himself in case Peaches and Constance were as impulsive as Jasmine. The takeoff was anticlimactic. Robert had a firm hand on the reins. 
The team was still a little awkward, but pulled away smoothly. The snow dampened the usual dirt road noises, making their travel more piff-puff-swish than clip-clop-clatter. Oh, it is so exciting to see another of your projects roll away successfully. Joni clapped a hand onto Martin's shoulder. I'm so happy to be working with you, Martin. Martin sighed. It was time. Could you come in the garage for a couple of minutes? Certainly, Martin. Joni bounced with each step as she followed him inside. Did you want to discuss the new gasifier project? Uh, not just yet. Have a seat. He pulled the folding chair out for her. He turned over a five-gallon bucket to sit on. What is it? Is something wrong? she asked. Uh, kinda. He searched his mind for how one might broach the topic of talking about feelings. Like starting his old truck in gear, with the clutch still in, his thoughts inadvertently became words. Uh, we need to talk about our feelings. As soon as he heard himself say the words, he cringed. Oh, did I just say that out loud? Oh, Martin, she gushed. She grabbed one of his hands in hers. I just knew you were one of those rugged but sensitive types. The move startled Martin. He stared at his hand in hers. Uh, should I yank it away or leave it there? He decided that bear attack advice might apply. He opted to play dead. It's just so amazing that you would say that. I was thinking the same thing, too. Whenever I'm here working on your projects, I feel so, I don't know, I feel so alive. She wriggled her back and shoulders in a small wave that probably would have been slightly sensual had it not been for fluffy down jackets, hats, and scarves. Martin sank inside. He was teetering on a slippery slope. I could tell you were different from all the rest that very first day when you came up to my table, she continued. You took the time to be nice, and then, when I, well, when I almost, but you were such a gentleman, you didn't take advantage of me. I could hardly believe it. I cried right then and there. Later on, I realized that it was because you really care about me. Or because I wasn't thinking about that at all, he thought. I mean, almost every other guy would have uh, been more interested in their own pleasure, but not you. You didn't because you care, and I feel the same way too. She squeezed his hand tighter. That's what we need to talk about. Martin extracted his hand slowly, but laid it on top of hers. Our feelings. Oh, what do you mean? He wanted to say that he had no deep emotional feelings for her, that she was only a neighbor in need and a good metal worker, but Margaret's advice hung in his mind. He wouldn't try to dispute what Joni felt, but go along with it and focus on ramifications instead. Well, these are tough times for everyone, he said at last. People are stressed out just trying to make sure there's a fire in the hearth at night and food on the table tomorrow. None of us can make it on our own. We must rely on each other. I don't understand what you're trying to say, Martin, Joni said, quietly puzzled. I'm saying that none of us, uh, not you or me, can do whatever we feel like without affecting all those who are depending on us. I can't, for example, just dwell on my feelings about you. 
which right now amount to dread and perspiring, he thought, uh, without hurting Margaret or Dustin and Judy and all the others who are depending on me. I have to think about them, too. Hmm. Her eyebrows began to sag in sadness. He realized that he had just used too many negative words. No, can't, hurt. She might not have followed his statement, but was probably sensing rejection from his choice of words. He needed to change the focus to her. Ah, uh, and it's the same for you. If you focus just on your feelings, how would Steve feel? Oh, Steve, he's such a useless lump. Sad eyebrows became angry eyebrows. Martin cut her off. Well, now, hold on. I know he was a little unprepared for something like this outage, but most people were. He might surprise you. Oh, what about Keaton and Kylie? Oh, what about them? She sat up straighter. Before all this happened, they had a happy, loving home with you and Steve, right? She nodded reluctantly. Well, they need that again. Now more than ever. They need you and Steve, the mom and dad they've always known, that tuck them in at night and sing them songs when they're scared. Martin had no idea if they tucked him in at night and sang him songs. He was getting out on a limb. Joni stared at the concrete floor. Her brow furrowed. So you're saying that you and I must set aside our feelings for Keaton and Kylie? Don't their little hearts matter more than anything in the world? Martin winced. He was laying it on a little too thick. He simply wanted her to think about her children and the ramifications of misplaced feelings, not to cause her to burst into tears. They do. Joni's expression grew tragic at the thought of her children being upset. Well, I think so, too. So here's what I think we need to do. When you're home, give Steve the respect that Kylie thinks her daddy deserves. Think how she sees things. You should continue to work on projects— not because of our feelings, but because it's important that Keaton sees his mommy is working to provide for him. He, he needs to see that. She nodded a few times and then looked up. But what about you and your feelings? she asked. He knew that that was his cue to admitting to feelings she imagined that he had. Life was so much simpler without all those feelings. Martin was gambling that Steve's salvage work would restore him in her eyes. They got married and had two children together, after all. She must have seen something in him. She needed time to see that again. Uh, I'll have to do the same. I'll work on these projects for the good of everyone else and not let my feelings get in the way. He could say that with total honesty. Oh, you're so brave that way, Martin. I really admire that. Going the wrong way here. Not what I wanted, he thought. Time to get back on topic. From now on, he stood up and held her hand as if ready to shake it to seal a business deal. We will set aside our feelings and continue doing business, simply business, for Keaton and Kylie. He shook her hand with a masculine, firm business style. She shook his hand back. Okay, strictly business for our families. Let's discuss the new gasifier project at the next town meeting. I should have some details from Arthur by then, he said. Okay, until the next meeting. She turned to go, but not before flashing a sad little smile. She was going to bravely sacrifice her feelings for her children. When she was out of sight, 
Martin sprawled onto the folding chair. Feelings are exhausting, he muttered to himself. He was really banking on a reinvigorated Steve becoming the focus of her attentions and feelings. He wanted to stay alone in the garage, where it was peaceful and quiet, but he could hear the squish-thump, squish-thump of one foot and a crutch approaching in the snow. Ah, eh, Mrs. Noser was right about you being in the garage. We got the acorns in their second boil, so I had time to... Oh, hey, I'm not interrupting some meditation thing or, or something, am I, Mr. Notzer? You're laying kind of still there with those cool shades on, and I can't really tell if your eyes are rolled back inside your head or not. Are you conscious? Is this some kind of medical event or something? Should I be running off to alert someone? Because I won't be very fast on my... No, Andy, I'm fine. Martin sat up and rubbed his face. What did you want? Oh, hey, cool, you're alive. I mean, um, yeah, I, I had this idea, but Mrs. Noser said I had to run it by you first. I don't think she liked my idea very much, but I think it's a great idea. I'm listening. Oh, okay, cool. Well, here goes. I know you don't have any room left in the house and have your rule about people not camping out in the living room because then someone would be unequally warmer than somebody else and that wouldn't be fair and cause all kinds of strife and stuff. But since you don't have any other rooms to sleep in other than, like, say, closets and stuff, I propose to ask you what you thought of me sleeping in your shed. Martin stared at Andy. There were too many words, delivered too quickly. Uh, what? Can I sleep in your shed? But there's no heat in there, and you just got frostbite and almost lost your feet, Martin said. Oh, hey, not to worry, said Andy. I checked it out earlier. Your shed is really tight. No wind gets in there. It's really miles ahead from my humble hut, which was okay as apartments go, if a bit small, but it was easy to keep clean, I have to say that for it. Uh, but I digress. Uh, what do you think? Andy stood very still, like a boy in front of the principal. Martin could see the logic of his request. There was no more real room in the house. Nonetheless, his plan had its flaws. But there's no plumbing, and the house's septic system can't handle what we have now. Oh, no problemo, Mr. No, sir. Water is from the well in buckets, and humanure. What? Humanure. Uh, basically, I poop in a bucket, and I save it for a compost pile. That's what we were doing back at the camp. Uh, now, hold on. Let me get this straight. You'll sleep in the shed and poop in the shed? Oh, well, in a bucket, actually, is what I said. And I can use the abundance of sawdust you guys are making in here. It won't stink or anything. And I'll go out and I'll look for acorns or pine nuts or cattails or whatever and help Mrs. No, sir, and Mama Migo cook them and, and share them with everybody else. I want to share the brotherly love and kindness that you were showing me with all those flatbreads. Oh, come on, man, what do you think? Uh, how about if we rigged you up a little stove? Uh, we've got lots of miscellaneous metal cans and tubing from the gasifier projects. I'll bet we could make up a little two-gallon stove that burned brush and sticks. Wouldn't take much to heat that shed. If you were used to sleeping without any heat at all, you'd probably be plenty cozy with a little stove to keep you above freezing. Aw, oh, man, you do that for me, Andy said. I don't know what to say. I mean, this gives me the feelings of... Oh, no, 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 interrupted Martin. No feelings. You can be happy, you can be warm, but no feelings. That's one of my new rules. Feelings. Our modern culture allows us to live fairly isolated lives from each other. Heck, 
With the Internet and services like Amazon Prime and DoorDash, we could almost live our lives without having to interact with any other humans. In a grid-down world, however, lots of people are going to be suddenly living very close together. Dealing with each other's emotions will be a challenge. If you're enjoying the story, consider supporting the work by becoming a member at buymeacoffee slash McRoland or on Patreon. I appreciate your support as I work on Book 6 of the Siege series. <laughs>